Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This week, we're resharing one of our favorite episodes of the Single Tracks podcast. If you've already heard this one, don't worry, because next week we'll be back with an all new show. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today our guest is Mr. Gary Fisher. Gary is one of the founding fathers of mountain biking, selling some of the first bikes through a company called What Else? Mountain Bikes. He was a part of the Repack race scene in the 1970s, and he's introduced countless innovations to the sport over the years. Thanks so much for joining us, Gary. Sure. My pleasure. So I want to start off talking about uh, how mountain biking got started and your early involvement. So you started racing bikes on the road and the track at age 12. How did how did you get into racing bikes at such an early age? Well, I guess there was a local bike shop and I'd hang out there a little bit. And the older guys, I mean, the 14 or 15 year olds, you know, they were all like into it. And I went on a ride with them and they were saying, you're too little. You can't come with us. And I just didn't pay attention. I just came and they couldn't get rid of me. And um, at first they said, well, we'll make you a mascot. And I started crying. And they said, okay, we'll make you a full-on member. And it was just that whole thing of uh, getting away from everything and having your freedom. Yeah. And then, um, you know, some older kids, some other kids to have a good time with. Yeah. And that whole thing. I find it interesting because right now everybody's – you know, really excited about NICA, which is getting, you know, younger people into mountain biking, competing in mountain biking. Yeah. And we kind of talk about it like it's a new thing, but yeah, that's why I was really interested in hear that you did that. When I was 12, I mean, it was not cool at all. <laughs> I mean, seventh grade and this girl sees me on in my bike outfit, you know, little girl socks, mm-hmm. little wool shorts, you know, the little jersey and everything. And she just said, oh, uh, what a farmer. And she told all the other kids. And I just had to take it for about six months. It was not cool at all to be doing that. And that was in the 60s, you know, and it was tiny. But um, the sport almost died. You know, there were very few people riding bikes um, unless you were a little kid or something like that. But that was then. I mean, this whole notion of off-road, I mean, goodness. Now, come on, off-road, that's over 120 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. um, people first rode bicycles. It was all off-road. But ours was a notion of going fast off-road and having a lot of fun with it because that was the scene in Marin County when I was like a teenager, when I was like into high school, mm-hmm. was the Larkspur Canyon Gang. was That was out of Redwood High School and it was the people that invented the drum circle, believe it or not, <laughs> in the 60s, wow. the early 60s. And it was like going out on Mount Tam and – having all this outdoors to ourselves. It was amazing, you know? Yeah. And the bikes, I mean, I was a bike racer, serious. And, but these bikes we were using were just like balloon tire. Come on, something big and fat that you could like rip, Mm -hmm. you know, have fun with. And 
the downside of it was is that the brakes were horrible and uh, they didn't last very long. So you go out with six people and you come back with three of them dragging parts. <laughs> but the whole idea was party in the woods, party in the woods, party in the woods, you know. Yeah. And um, my involvement was um, I named the sport, called it mountain bikes. I did a, um, a lot of publicity behind it because my family comes out of Hollywood and my mother taught me publicity, first for the bike race team, Velo Club Tamalpais, and then later on, you know, for the company named Mountain and with Charlie Kelly. And we put out a very simple format race, uh, downhill time trial, still using it today. Yeah. I mean, Hope Toledo. It's a pretty <laughs> cool format. You know, there are other formats that have come up that are incredible, too. And what's happened, you know, my involvement, I mean, I just loved this from the very beginning saying, man, this is like limitless and like what people can do. Yeah. And the whole roller coaster thing and going crazy on a bike, you know, that hadn't been done before. Yeah. I mean, people in a off road were sedate and all that. <laughs> we were not sedate. <laughs> we were having fun. I mean, Lars Buchanan gang, we do a derby night. Derby night would be like a big wide place, you know, out there in the woods that we knew about nobody else did and it'd be full moon night and you start the first hour you'd have cocktail hour and we'd bring a lot of beer and everybody <laughs> drink a lot of beer for about the first hour and you'd like ride around in this big clearing and one hand on the beer you know one hand on the bars and try to say hello and try <laughs> to like uh, have your drinks and everything and not uh, spill the beer because yeah. that wasn't cool then uh, the <laughs> second hour you get a serious derbing and um you know, the bikes were such where if you fell down, other people would run right over you, you know, and ride over you and everything. Anyway, there's a big old party. Yeah. And that wasn't the nighttime activity that, and and parties in the city and things uh, that these guys, uh, Casey Sauna Band put together, who was a musician and everything. And then um, the off-road shenanigans. Yeah. You know, those guys, that's where I sort of figured out. This was a lot of fun. And that was like when I was in high school. And that was like in the uh, – I was class of 68 at Redwood. Okay. And um, I was doing a lot of other things at the same time. I got thrown out of uh, racing because my hair was too long. It was just over my ears. You couldn't believe it. <laughs> and about the same time, I met this band called The Grateful Dead. And they had played a gig down in Pescadero, California, along with the Quicksilver Messenger Service. I'm sure you remember them if you're a 60s San Francisco sound person. <laughs> anyway, they played uh, three nights in a row. Less than 100 people showed up. I mean, my God, these bands are popular. And you <laughs> listen to like that old stuff of the dead. I mean, oh, man. It was like they use Altic Lansing horns. They were these ridiculous, you know, aluminum horns. Yeah. That was the PA system. Wow. And everything else just ran through. Um, the drums were on their own. The bass was on its own. You know, it was it was ridiculous. And I, you know, but it was a really I was already doing a lot of hanging out with uh, like the whole Ken Kesey, the Merry Pranksters and, and then uh, the Hells Angels. Oh, wow. Because we'd see them. We'd see them, you know, in, in La Honda, California. We'd be riding our bikes, and they'd be at Kesey's place there. And we'd all stop and check it out. And then later on, we'd be down in Pescadero and in uh, San Gregorio, and they'd come on their motorcycles, and they'd check us out, <laughs> you know, on our bikes. The little skinny kids, yeah. you know, uh, like 18-year-olds, yeah. you know, like. 15, 18, and then the, and the ringleader of our gang was this Larry Walpole, and he was an old 
Englishman out of East London, had the heavy Cockney accent, worked for Pan Am as a mechanic, and was just like great and hilarious. And we go over to his house and read all the old uh, bike magazines, you know, like, like cycling, British Cycling Weekly, the UK, and then also uh, Miroir de Cycles. It was like a, a French magazine. It was like we never saw – I never saw anybody ride a bike in Europe until I was in my 20s because there were no – video at the time right and it was like you had to there was it wasn't on tv ever you know so you'd never see people doing it and anybody you'd see out riding at the time in the 60s you'd stop them and say who are you man? let's <laughs> right. exchange phone numbers you know and let's together and all that you're connecting a lot of dots here for me anyway the larkspur canyon gang first of all that predates repack and you're, yeah. you're saying this is this was like a high school group essentially well, yeah, I got out of high school and I moved in with the debt over in the hate. And then I worked for them. I worked for the airplane. And then came a thing called Altamont. That was in December of 1969. And we hosted the uh, hell. Uh, well, it was it was the Rolling Stones. So Sam Cutler, of the Rolling Stones, Ron Rackow from the Grateful Dead, Bill Thompson from the Jefferson Airplane and Sonny Barger. They were all in a meeting on this house in Ron Racco's house on Sacramento Street. I was there. And, you know, I was a kid. I worked, you know, I was 17, 18. I did light shows and I worked for a company called Grand Ultimate Steward Company hmm. or Gus. And we used to take care of the dead. We used to take care of the airplane. To see all this shit go down, you couldn't believe it, man. And that was a mess, you know. And four people died at that concert. Oh, Every, wow. Everybody left town. So I moved out of town, moved back to Marin County, to Kentfield with a band called New Riders of the Purple Sage. They were an offshoot of the Grateful Dead. They were psychedelic country western. And um, we all lived in Kentfield. I took care of the house, man. I had free rent. And uh, I started riding my bike a whole bunch again. And uh, I ran into Charlie Kelly. Everybody was telling me, oh, you got to see this guy, Charlie. He's just like you, man. <laughs> and like we both had orange colnagos. We both had long hair. And he was a roadie for a band called the Sons of Champlin. I met him and it's like, hey, let's move in together. Let's have a pad. Let's do a thing. So we <laughs> moved in together. And um, I introduced Charlie to the, the fat tire thing. And we went out. Oh, the first ride we did, we did on single speeds. And the next week I'm saying, hey, I got to put gears on this thing. Mm -hmm. And I got to put, uh, you know, brakes on this thing. So within about a month's time, I put together my original clunker. Then I, the next month, I put one together for Charlie. This was in September of 1974. And later on in December was a cyclocross race I rode. I rode my cross bike. And um, I met the guys from Cupertino. And they had their fat tire bikes. I said, that's cool. I did not get any ideas from those guys. <laughs> they didn't get any ideas from me. Yeah. They did it spontaneously on their own. Yeah, that's interesting. There's other people too. You know, Victor Vincenti, who was Michael Hiltner. I knew of Michael Hiltner in 1964-65. He won the National Road Championships in 1965 in L.A. That was the first road championships they'd had in over 25 years. Everything else was on the track all that time. Uh -huh. So it was in Northern California. Southern California was a resurgence of road racing in the 60s, in the, the mid to late 60s. And then came the 70s. 73 was a gas war and things went nuts. I mean, it was like bikes went from 4.7 million uh, sales in one year to 15 million. Whoa. In uh, 74. It was 
crazy, you know. And uh, everybody had to have a bike, and it was the bike craze. And so we started Vela Club Tamalpais at that time. It was a, you know, and that was with Charlie. And we'd been doing, but we'd already been doing, um, we started doing the repack races. Mm-hmm. And it was just because it was fun, you know? Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, so much of that story, too, just seems to connect with mountain biking today. I mean, you, the biker gang sort of mentality, you know, mountain biking is definitely got like more of an edge to it than, than road biking and, and the, you know, to the beer drinking, you know, I mean, that's a big part of our culture now. And it's just really fascinating that that has endured and that that's what separates us. I mean, people, like you mentioned, people had been riding bikes off road for a long time, but this was something new. There's a, there's a number of things, but you take the history was funny. You know, it's like, okay, I mean, you know, the original bikes he rode in Repack, they were pretty laid back. I mean, it's 68 degree head. They're really heavy wheels. I mean, steel rims, you know, so they were really heavy duty and the tires are super heavy duty. Mm-hmm. They didn't flat and you can run them down to like 20 PSI. We do that all the time. Oh, wow. And that was sort of our expense, suspension. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny. I mean, then we went the other way. I mean, we went, um, we made light frames and, you know, it's really funny. You take Joe Breeze's first bike that he made, mm-hmm. very first one, that was like 36 pounds, 38 pounds. Right. It had, it had steel rims on it. It had uh, caliper brakes on it. I mean, cantilever brakes. Those brakes are sort of worthless in the wet. You mm-hmm. know, so like a, it's an evolution, you know, but where we went, I mean, we went I mean, like the bike I had in uh, for winning repack, that thing, the drum brakes on that thing were ridiculously <laughs> powerful. You know, they were like, yeah. they were wonderful. They were like one finger brakes. They were amazing, you know, and there was a tandem candle, uh, tandem uh, drum brake. So it, it had a lot of, t- of power and really big cables. Then we went to cantilever brakes. And when you had steel rims, they were sort of ridiculous. Then the BMX guys came along with the alloy rims because they had the cruiser class. And the alloy rims were like so much lighter. They were 19 ounces each, hmm. where the old steel rims were 55 ounces Whoa. each. Wow. Each. You know? <laughs> That's that's more than three pounds. They were amazing, you know, <laughs> as far as the, uh, gyroscopic stability. And right. then um, they were like really rounded on the edges of the rims. So like you couldn't rim pinch very easy on them. They were amazing. Mm-hmm. They were actually, they worked pretty well for the intended use downward. Um, climbing, it was horrible, you know. So all of a sudden, you know, 1979, we start this company mountain bikes and we can put together a bike that's like 27 pounds. That bike does not go downhill like the old bikes do, mm-hmm. believe me. <laughs> you know, but it sure does climb. And then the races start, you know, and all the racing and everything. And we get into this lighter and lighter and lighter thing, you know, super light. The race is won and lost on the climb. So and then comes John Tomac and he is riding a 73 degree head angle and he dropped bars, you know. <laughs> And Charlie Cunningham had dropped bars, but his bars started from a pretty high position. So okay. they didn't go down that far. And the same with like Scott Nichols is running drop bars. But it was all about climbing and, hmm. uh, you know, making to the top fast and making all your time there and everything. Yeah. And bikes just started to reflect that. And, um, you know, 
thank God it's come full circle. Yeah. Well, but even, I mean, it's only come full circle in my mind just within the last few years. I mean, we're still seeing that yeah, right. evolution back toward the original. You know, I was talking to to Joe Breeze about that, those early bikes that he made and, you know, talking about a 68 degree head tube angle. I mean, that's what, that's what everybody's going to now for like a trail bike, you know, and it's kind of like we're going back to that in the the tires too that you're saying how the old tires could run them really low pressures and it's like the last few years people are saying yeah. geez you know it's actually kind of nice running them at 20 psi let's see what we can do to make that happen right and you look at what they're doing with all the inserts uh on the yes. down dh tires and everything they're finally getting to a place where they you can have your cake and eat it too there was a period of time where like people were running like 40 psi 45 all the time because they were just worried about rim pinch you know that was a big and they were getting to be horrible bikes to ride yeah. you know and and uh it was before you know we got into really good suspension you know and, and the first suspension was you know really squirrely and awful <laughs> right yeah i mean you were one of the first to add suspension to a mountain bike what did, what did people think about it at that time did they think it was a good thing did they think it was weird did they think it was cheating i had to argue with my sales guys tooth and nail they were like Nobody's going to buy that. And this was the Mount Tam in 1991. And it was basically a suspension ready uh, design that I did with uh, Paul Turner, you know, and we were the first ones to have a bike that came with a shock fork. Mm -hmm. And my sales guys were saying, look, man, it adds 400 bucks to the cost to the sales point of the bike. It adds a couple of pounds and everybody was in a weight war, Yeah, you know, and they just, it's like, no, no, no. And then we came out with it and six months later. They were super happy. Yeah. You know, and then the next year we did the bike with, um, with Mert Lyle, the RS1. And that bike was like crazy. It was like too far ahead of its time. You know, it was like, ah, man, we had a disc brake, you know, and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> were people, were people confused about the bike? Were they, were they thinking like, is this a motorbike or is this, cause Suspension had been around on motorcycles, but was it weird to people to see it on a mountain bike? Oh, completely. Well, there was that big divide because you had guys, you know, well, like Joe and like Tom Ritchie that are all like hardcore roadies, <laughs> you know, from the, you know, and they're looking at that and saying, oh, no, can't we do something else instead of that? You know, making it look like a motorcycle. They say, oh, that looks like a motorcycle. And um, at the same time, I mean, like I've I've always been into embracing people from other places, you know, and that's what Mert Lowell represented to me. I mean, you know, I love working with Mert. Mm -hmm. He just had a big, wild, open imagination, you know, and that bike was a huge lesson to us. You know, it was we learned so much through that thing, and we um, made seven hundred and fifty of them. We sold them all. People that bought them were early adopters, total pioneers, and I don't care about the naysayers, <laughs> you know. I, I mean, you know, it's like cross-country mountain biking now has technicalities in it, mm -hmm. and so do the bikes. And that's because I, your friend right here, went to the UCI, and you want to, in the act of getting them to accept the 29er, because 29ers were illegal until I had them change the rule. Oh, wow. Yeah, because... Um, I, they said to me, hey, we don't want to have, you know, 29-inch be allowed, 700C, you know. We don't want people bringing cross bikes. I said, look, stop making mountain bike courses that are cross courses. <laughs> right. That's a good good solution. Make them mountain bike courses. 
And so they did. And so they are, you know, and it's be, and it's because that's what people want to ride. You know, they want to ride stuff like this because it's a lot of fun. Yeah. The technical thing of like, wow, I clean that, you know, there's always been a lot of fun on a mountain bike. I mean, you know, and this thing, yeah, you can make a course faster and faster. And then what do you got? You got a road course, you know, you got a, a dirt crit or something like that, you know? Yeah. It's not mountain biking. So I'm uh, totally happy with, with what's been going on. You know, we've got choice, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Right. And we've been perfecting it and make it work. I mean, you know, it's like uh, we've got the ability to make these huge tires that are relatively light, incredibly tough. And then we take the suspension and tune it to that setup because that's a different setup, mm. you know, and go through all the stuff and do it thoroughly. Yeah. And do it correctly. You know, I love having the resource to be able to do these things now. So, you know, you're going to be able to get a bike that really suits um, what your needs are. You know, what you as a rider likes, grocks. I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> and and that's the funny thing. I mean, we're not all about just time, time, time. I mean, we still got the the downhill is always fascinating because it's judged by time. You know, that uh, but, man, we got all these other events now that it's just not always just flat out time, you know? Yeah. Well, you were involved in a lot of the competition stuff in the nineties, right? Working with race teams and I worked with uh, Norba for a long time, almost 20 years, which has like been sort of like gone through not the best of times. I mean, we made the biggest mistake at the Olympics in uh, Atlanta. We hired a really cheap production crew. And at the same time, it costs like crazy. We're 46 cameras, wow. you know, for that event. It was crazy, you know, like the uh, the costs. And then um, the event was horrible, you know. <laughs> it was just – and it came down to the course more than anything. Yeah. I've seen videos of that. I'm based here in Atlanta, so we do ride those trails now, and, and they're completely different. If you look at the videos, there's like a real grainy video on YouTube people can look up. But the tr the trail, I'm using air quotes here, is like – it's like a highway. I mean, it just was like flat and yeah. wide open. And, and I suppose that was to make it more exciting because they thought people would be passing and things like that. Well, the, the most the most incredible thing now, I mean, we didn't spend any money. That was a problem. You know, now it's like the their purpose-built trails. Mm -hmm. Those are the most incredible things. That's like people ask me, but technically, what's the most incredible thing that happened in the last 10 years? The trails. Oh. Come on. You know, I, mean, it, I mean, you think about how many trails have been built. For mountain bikers, by mountain bikers. That's what makes it. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what really makes the whole thing. And it makes uh, the whole sport go. Yeah. Well, I mean, what would you say drives mountain bike design more? What has historically? I mean, is it the competition side or is it the, like, let's just keep making bikes more fun and making them so people can enjoy trails? Well, it's it's both, you know, come on. I mean, the competition guys just, they're racking their brains every weekend, you know, to try come up with something better. And, and that's more a thing of refinement. And then um, just the people of like, hey, man, I got a big, bigger joke than you do. Watch this, right? You know? And what are we doing? We're pulling each other's chain, trying to have a good time. And man, when you got something that's undeniably just like, we're having huge fun and everything. It's just like unstoppable, right? So that's what we're always trying to like identify and um, to try and serve. And we do, you know, we've done maybe almost too good of a job of it in that we 
make all these different uh, permutations of bikes, a million permutations of bikes, and not enough people to tell you, just ride this one. You'd be so happy. You can't stand it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? We get too hung up in the decision. But hey, we're working on that too. I mean, it's a huge part of like what we're doing right now as a company is working on the way that we present our bikes and that we um, we show people. And it's more about, you know, hey, you can do this or this is possible or this is a lot of fun instead of like the, mm-hmm. the nut and bolt part of it, you know, just like this is a, this type of tire and that type of thing, you know, because really – it's like 90% of people in the business to get excited about all that technical stuff. Mm-hmm. And only 30% of humans get excited about that. The rest of them are going like, come on. Yeah. I mean, you're selling an experience, you know, it's, people don't want to get weighed down in the technical details. They, they just want to, most of us just want to go out and have fun. At the same time, you don't want to be a fool. You don't want to be a chump. You want to know your stuff, right? Right. You know, you, know, you don't want to get rolled on the thing. You know, because you can get uh, everybody knows. I mean, you get into something that's being sold off because this isn't going anywhere. You know, this is like uh, the supply of this is going away and like uh, this is a dead end. Yeah. You know, that's what we experience all the time with a lot of electronica. You know, it's like you get into something and you get I mean, everybody's got stuff, old media, electronic media. It's like, oh, man, I don't even think I can play that on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. A friend just handed me a CD-ROM with some photos from a ride. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm sorry. It's like, oh, man, really? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and 10 years ago, it's a little bit, well, of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk about the first carbon fiber mountain bikes, bike culture, and some of the challenges the industry is facing. Stay tuned. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find Singletracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. So you were one of the first to experiment with carbon fiber mountain bike frames. So what, what were some of the challenges involved in that in the early days? Well, the early days was trying to get those big companies to like really do something that really worked. <laughs> you know, it was hard. I mean, our their first carbon fiber experience was with Torre, which was a big Japanese company. And they still make a ton of carbon fiber for the industry and for bikes and everything. And that was great. Um, but uh, man. And we only made seven bikes at the end of the day. Oh, wow. It wasn't reality. You know, and I think about Trek and how they, okay, there was a certain racer that won seven Tour de France's. And people don't even say his name. (laughs) And he brought a lot of goodness to the bike industry. You know, and that a lot of bike sales, a lot of people were excited about bikes. The New York Times would carry bike racing every single day. And so would all the other media and everything. And like it or not, uh, bike ra- bikes were big there for a while. And he won his first tour, and he won it on one of our carbon fiber bikes. And traditionally, you'd make 500 bikes and say, here's the replica. You know, you can buy this uh, for a lot of money, and we'd sell them out. And we decided to make 20,000 bikes because we knew people would like it, although it was a crazy new category, five to $10,000 bicycle, right? It was a totally whole new place. 
And people got into it because the bike actually worked. It actually felt good, you know. I mean, I had other, you know, early carbon bikes. Like I, I had a, a Calfio by uh, Greg Lamont by Calfi really early on. And that bike was a cool, you know, concept. And it rode pretty nice. But, man, it was dead. And it wasn't that light. It was amazing. I had an aluminum frame that was lighter than that one. It was crazy. You know, I mean, everything has evolved, you know, and uh, it keeps going. And that's the thing we did is we built a lot of those bikes and we sold them all. And instead of a dealer being able to sell one or maybe two, they sold like 10 or 20. Wow. So there's a lot of demand for that. I mean, were people skeptical, though? Um no, because we had a guarantee and our guarantee's always good, been good. We got a great reputation for guarantee. So they weren't skeptical. You know, they yeah, I mean a skepticism is like, wow, do you trust carbon? Right. 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 That was back then. And we stepped in it in a big way. We said, No, no, no. Your lifetime guarantee, just like all of our other bikes. And people said, Okay. You guys you replaced my last bike really well, so. <laughs> was there any worry on your end? I mean, having not done that before, did you all do a lot of the research? No, no, and- no, no. We had, no, we had always done it. And we had a few crazy guys in the company that said, I, we really believe this will make a superior bike. And it didn't sell for beans for us until that one particular guy won a Tour de France on it. It's just like having a downhill bike, you know, that there's a certain downhiller that we had him for a while, Specialized had him for a while, and now he sells somebody else's bike, and man, it sells really well. Right. That all works. I mean, you know, it's totally irrational and unreasonable, but boy, it works. Yeah. <laughs> it works for them. Oof, that's a good downhiller. That's a good road rider. You know what? It was entertainment. Whatever. It worked, you know. But um, we stepped up to the plate, and we made it a real thing. Because it, it wasn't a real thing. I mean, before that, it was like, you know, it was a, a really nice bike. When I started this, you could buy a full Campagnolo Cinelli for $200, $199, full on. Okay, and then it was like in the 70s, when we started Mountain Bikes, the company, our bike in 1979 sold for $1,320. It was a lot. You could buy, you could buy a full on Colnago. Uh, with full Campanello. And because Campanello at the time, there was a lot of gray market going on because Campanello would sell direct, give groups directly to the teams, the race teams, and then the race teams would sell them for whatever they felt like. Ooh. Anyway, you could buy that for 450 bucks. You could get a Ben Sirota, a beautiful custom bike, you know, for um, $9.95, you know, complete. Mm-hmm. You know, it was crazy. And our bike was $1,320. It was beautiful. And we'd say to people, well, you don't want a cheap parachute. And they bought them like crazy. And it was because, and they were beautiful. We stood behind them and we took the perception of what a bike cost to a different place. Yeah. And it's, it Trek did the same thing with the carbon bike. And you, you need to do that every now and again in order to like reset the whole industry. Because come on, man, I'm sorry, but bikes in this great grand scheme of people's stuff, a really, really nice bike made in the way of NASA or the way of Formula One. And what can you buy in that category? It costs 10 grand, 15 grand, and people will spend that kind of money on a vacation at the drop of a hat. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. The kind of money that's out there these days is crazy. You know, at the same time, you know, 
I guess our president's gonna make the price of bikes go up. <laughs> Sounds like that's a that's a real possibility. Is it ever? That's gonna hurt a little. So you alluded to some of the innovations and things that are happening right now. What what are you most excited about in terms of the new technology and things that are happening with bikes over the last few years? I guess you know, there's just there's a lot of progress in every area. I think um, the thing I am most excited about is making the dreams come true. And the guy who did that before us was uh, Steve Jobs and Apple, you know, because all the computer guys would say, hey, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this, you can do that. And for the average person, it didn't come true. Yeah. You know, they, they, they weren't geek enough to be able to pull it off. And Apple pulled it off and it was a retail interface. And that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like being able to like have a, a place of respectfulness for anybody mm-hmm. and uh, of, of help, you know, and of information. And, uh, you know, it's the old thing, the old Pogo uh, cartoon. We have met the enemy and he is us. <laughs> right. You know, it's like having bad attitude, making people unhappy. Right. You know, that's not we're going. Yeah. No, we're, we're tra- the happy machine. We, we like to say this is the world's happiest invention. <laughs> and I really, I do believe that. Yeah. Th- there's a good case for that. There's a real big case for that. And let me sit down uh, with you and explain why. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the greatest thing I've ever discovered. I'd love to share it with you. And you've come to the right place. <laughs> well, that's really interesting that you bring up Steve Jobs and Apple. I mean, this is a, a parallel that I've seen in my mind anyway. And, and some of the other guys, Joe Breeze and Tom Ritchie, you know, asked them similar questions about, about the place. I mean, the Bay Area, is, is there something about that place where, where these ideas sort of germinate more easily? I mean, it, I just find it fascinating that mountain biking and, you know, a lot of the great tech booms, you know, have come from the same place. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, uh, Yopes Brandt, the guy that taught us a lot about basic uh, bikes, how they're built, why they're built that way. Now, he worked for Hewler Packard, and you can also see a placard that dedicated to him on uh, the Stanford Linear Accelerator. And this is like typical, like we like of like the mix of um, knowledge, you know, study, and then some wild new things like Stuart Brandt. He did the whole Earth Catalog. Right. I did the bicycle section for the whole Earth Catalog. And these were people that I met through the dead and through Ken Kesey and his group of people. These guys, you know, it's always been the attitude of like, well, why not? We can do that. Yeah. You know, and that's been that's been seeped in the Bay Area for the longest time. It was like that whole thing with the Altamont. That was um, takeoff on Woodstock. And Woodstock was about, wow, man, we have got amplification and we can create this mega concert. That couldn't be done before. I think we take it for granted yeah. that all this is possible. That's really cool and really hopeful for the industry as well. Well, for the industry, though, I will tell you, it's like part of it is um, this interface that we make better shops and better ways that uh, we supply people and take care of people, better information. Okay, that's one thing. The others are with the kids, the school kids, the NICA thing. We want to be in every single high school in the United States. It's 179,000 high schools. Wow. We want to be in every single one. (laughs) (laughs) That's ambitious. And then, uh, yeah. And then as far as like um, we're on a program too, we're trying to talk to a lot of city leaders about doing uh, more mountain bike routes in the cities. 
been especially like, you know, creating a network that's like safe routes to school mm-hmm. that uh, goes through buildings, over streets, uh, sort of dominates the second floors. Dirt routes to school. Yeah, like Ray's Indoor Mountain Bike Park, man, where you got like a challenge and then you got to go around all the time, mm-hmm. you know, a feature and a go around because it, it, we know now it helps kids calm down and be more focused when they're in class. And people that, you know, you know it's all about making the cities a place where you'd actually want to raise your kids. That's a really cool goal. I believe that mountain bikes are a part of that for sure. Why not? You know, let's have fun with the thing. It's like, let's rig the city so it's like, it's actually fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like a playground. Yeah. I like it. Well, yeah. And a really healthy one at that, you know, and it's like, because it, it's all about taking those things you know that are good for you and making them a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So we, we started at the beginning talking a lot about mountain bike culture in the early days and sort of how it's evolved. Would a modern mountain biker feel welcome among that first group of riders from Repack? Definitely. You know, they just have to lay aside their, uh, well, no, I mean, I, there were always those within the group that were competitive, always will be, you know. But then there was like, hey, <laughs> It was like, are you having fun right now? That's always the question you got to ask, you know. So, yeah, as long as you have an open mind and you want to have fun, then, I mean, it seems like that would be, that's kind of the only requirement to be a part of that. No, it wasn't uh, uptight roadies. That was for <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, I mean, it was like um, um, the basic tenants is like, everybody gets a place. Everybody has a, a finish time. Uh, everybody, you know gets respect you know the last finisher is or last person in it just as important as the first one you know and uh the fast experience is just over faster that's it yeah. <laughs> yeah. well obviously you see a lot of opportunity with mountain bikes and mountain biking in the future are there any challenges that you see that we're facing right now or that maybe we're going to face in the future yeah mostly my generation that doesn't understand and it just like we're dying off. <laughs> <laughs> Don't understand in what way, like trail access or? Uh, any of that. They just think it's all like uh, for the betterment of like just a few people having uh, thrills and the thrills aren't fun. Yeah. You know, so it's a, there's a, it's plenty of that here in Marin County. You know, it's, it's difficult. You know, people are, they just don't understand, you know, what we're doing. But fortunately the kids do, you know, that's what's amazing is that with NICA, we don't have to bribe the kids to be on the team. Right. Um, we, there's, uh, the teams wind up being bigger than the football teams. Football's in decline a bit, but, um, you know, overall uh, athletics and especially uh, girls' athletics are coming up. And um, we have more and more evidence that this is really good and good quality and that it's not um, – that in the long term we save money by doing this, especially we get the kids to ride to school and – learn their own responsibility and everything. So it's a, it's a movement, uh, it's a grassroots movement. And the grassroots movements are defined by these are things that people would do left on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it's, it's not like the big bad bike coalitions are putting this together, which is another really funny thing. I was at the Nike convention, um, you know, a couple of months ago, and I was talking there and I said, hey, guys, I'll tell you, a really good source of money in the cities is all the uh, rideshare guys. Oh, yeah. Uh, scooter guys, all these guys like Bird, they're evaluated at $2 billion right now. 
Jeez. They, they're talking about, these guys are talking about, I love what these guys say. They say, why do we have all these cars in the city? Why don't we have, you know, separate uh, scooter bike lanes from the cars? We'll even pay for them. They're even saying that. These are the guys that are going to make this crazy stuff come through, come t- true. Yeah. Is anybody in the bike industry, you think, doing that as well? It seems like Shrek is definitely involved. Well, we throw more money than any other bike company, okay? And I forget, at one point we figured it out. We were doing like seven times as much as number two, okay? Let me tell you, these other guys, Bird and these other guys, they got real money. <laughs> They're going to do like 50, 50 times as much as we do. That's going to have an effect. I mean, I'm, I'm just talking about the size of the money. They're, they're much bigger than we are. Yeah. Well, it's like that's baked into a lot of these business models now. I mean, do you think were bike companies thinking about that in those early days? I mean, with, with, were you thinking about that with mountain bikes and, and with your own label? Well, bikes? All the time. Like all the time. And as a kid riding around saying it's so easy for me to ride around. And people are so stupid in their cars. Mm-hmm. And then they get they're unhealthy, and this thing is so dangerous. This is crazy. And polluting and everything. And it's just a big scam, you know, the whole <laughs> thing. To no, in a lot of ways yeah. it is. You know, and you, and you go through the history of the whole thing. They were really had a, a lot of imagination, a lot of will, you know, and they made us dependent on automobiles hundred percent in the United States. It's the world's most expensive transit system. You know, when you try to when you go to like the cost of moving an individual around. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't work. We get traffic jams that are like ridiculous and people don't like to do things. You know, it's uh, the bike thing. When you travel around, you go to other countries that have, have an evolved uh, bike uh, infrastructure. It's like, wow, this is incredible, you know, because a lot of cities couldn't exist the way they are in, in Northern Europe. You know, a lot of, you know, Amsterdam, all these, you know, cities in Holland and, and, um, Sweden and all these places, they, they could not exist with the density they have. It's like going to Tokyo. I mean, there are 20 million people in Tokyo. It's one of the largest cities on earth. And they use subways and bikes and walking like you can't believe. Yeah. You know, there are bikes everywhere, you know. From an engineering standpoint, that city would be absolutely impossible without those two things, those three things, you know. And um, ours is – we went on a program – of in the states of getting rid of uh, pedestrian and bicycle and all the and transit, you know, we're starting in 1932. Hmm. General Motors, uh, um, it was Chairman Sloan, he was a genius uh, of uh, General Motors, and he formed a consortium with Standard Oil, Mack Truck, Firestone Tire. They bought up 87 different rail entities in the United States, they put them all out of business. They would go into receivership, and then for forgiveness of debt, they would turn over the right-of-way to the municipality under the proviso that the tracks be torn out, the, um, they'd be paved over, and all the trolley cars burned. Now, in 1947, the U.S. government found them all guilty of a conspiracy. They fined the individuals a dollar each and the corporations $5,000 each. And remember, at the time, we had a slogan, what's good for General Motors is good for the United States. Now, in 1956, Dwight Eisenhower, our president, spent more money uh, than ever before had been spent and actually than ever has been spent since and adjusted for inflation on one thing. That's the interstate freeway system. We're having a hard time repairing the thing right now. You know, (laughs) it it doesn't move people around so much. So it's like we made a heavy duty investment in that. And for us to like back out of it, ooh, it's sort of painful. 
you realize this when you travel in Europe, go to uh, Asia, and especially not China. Oh, man, they put in a ton of high-speed rail. You know, they realized that, like, um, cars were not going to be the answer, and we're just going to create more of a pollution thing. And they're trying to get a hold of their whole pollution because they're trying to, like, uh, create a good environment for people to raise their families. And we're going uh, the other direction. We're saying, nah. Yeah. Well, cars seem to be a part of, of mountain biking culture today. I mean, mo- for most people, when they imagine going for a mountain bike ride, they imagine, you know, I load the bike up in the car and then I drive 30 minutes or whatever to the trailhead. But was that something that you did in the early days or were you all able to ride, you know, to all the trails? I mean, was there a lot of driving involved? Uh, yes, and no. Yes and no. You know, come on. I mean, like I was a hardcore. I'd say I'm going to ride to the, to everything, right? But then Fred, good old Fred Wolf. I mean, he made the thing happen because he had a truck, <laughs> and he'd take people here and there. No, it it did, you know. And it and so I'm not going to say we were pure. You know, we had a lot of attitude about bikes and and cars and the whole thing like that. But no, we weren't pure. No way. <laughs> and me, I mean, it's like, come on. I've been sponsored by Subaru, by Saab. 20 years I had a free car. So I'm going to complain, you know. It's a nice perk. It's a real nice (laughs) perk, you know, but it's like, am I going to complain? Well, you know, it's sort of like the car brought us all kinds of good things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Chairman Sloan was a genius doing what he did, but too much is too much, you know. That's all. Cars, as we know them, do not belong in our cities. You know, as anyway, I can go on about this. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, clearly you're... you're passionate about it and, and the transportation thing. I mean, that's a theme that, that we hear from a lot of people in your position in the industry, that this is a thing that's happening and it's a, the bikes are a great solution. And especially when it comes to electric bikes. And so what, what are your thoughts on that as it pertains to mountain biking? Do you think electrics have a good place in mountain biking or, or how, how does that sort of fit in? I like a good, clean, pure bike. And then again, in an acoustic bike. And I also, the electric though, man, it's way too much fun. That's a problem. Because <laughs> you can, you know, you you equip the bike with more heavy duty stuff because you're not worried about the weight so much. Mm-hmm. And man, what a ripping bike that thing is. And it's still, you know, this is the world's most efficient motorized transport, right? And the guys in the forest service, they're starting to eat them up because they're quiet. Right. They don't think about the same amount of noise as the wind uh, uh, rustling the leaves, right? Mm-hmm. And they like them quiet because you can hear your victim. <laughs> you know, they want to go on search and rescue, yeah. and they can hear their victim. They can't do that with a helicopter or a motorcycle or an ATV. And then it's like it is the cheapest way for you to get around your property, and in a lot of cases, the fastest. So we're actually selling a lot of electric mountain bikes to the Forest Service guys. So it's it's like and then it's like they're not it, like the big problem, man, you got like motorcycles and bikes don't mix so well because the moto guy has a full face helmet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's making a lot of noise. Yeah. He doesn't hear yeah. you, man. He can't hear you. And a guy on an electric bike can actually hear you yammering and stuff and, you know, and riding along. You can electric bike is quiet enough where you can hear somebody on a regular bike. So we're also watching what happens in Europe because they've been around there for 10 years, uh, electric mountain bike, and there are places where there's lots of them. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're just suffering sometimes from just there's a lot of mountain bikers. So then you got to direct things and make things and deal with uh, the pressure. But it's funny. I mean, um, we had our 
uh, Marin County Board of Supervisors had a meeting a couple of months ago. Said they announced a meeting and said we plan to ban electric mountain bikes from uh, the water district, and and you know in all the territory out here. And so a bunch of old people showed up to ride electric mountain bikes and said, "Hey, we've been doing this for a few years and we don't bother anybody." <laughs> Board of Supervisors said, "Okay, we're not going to ban them, and in fact, we're out." I'm telling you, the old people run this place yeah. called Marin County. There's a bunch of old people here. And there are other counties. It's the oldest population in the whole Bay Area. And the population is old. And I go to other places. I go to the southeast of the United States. I go to the Midwest. And people are so open to mountain bikes and realize all the goodness it does for kids. Yeah. And right here, it's it's funny. I mean, all seven high schools have got a team. So this is, you know, and it's really funny. There's an underground movement in uh, the water district, which is the biggest district. And, and all the other guys, the rangers, the young rangers, they say, I look the other way, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, seriously, they do. You know, and the old guys in there are the guys that want to nail everybody. Right. Well, fortunately, a lot of the younger guys, you know, I, I see this all the time where people who started riding in the 80s or the 90s, you know, now they're the guys who are in charge of some of these groups. And, you know, they're, that's, that's changing and, and it's going to change. It's inevitable um, just based on demographics. But what, what would you make of the sort of the debate among mountain bikers about whether e-bikes have a place within mountain biking or not. Does that kind of bother you that people are um, sort of choosing sides in the debate? Yeah, well, people are people. People are going to talk and everything. You know, one of my very best friends from a long time ago came out totally against e-bikes. And I told him, I don't care what you say, you're always going to be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to look at it and we uh, we and we totally respect each other you know but it's sort of cooling out you know the whole thing and i think it's um uh, definitely going to benefit uh trail building there'll be more trail building not less yeah well do you think that's i mean it seems like a lot of people are opposed to it because they it's unfamiliar to them and it's new is that I mean, is that another one of those people or people things or are mountain bikers more guilty of? No, 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 no. No, That's just people being people. That's people being people, you know, and I've seen it all the time. I mean, you know, it's like, like some of my best racers have been so adamant. They don't want to try some new things out. I got to hold their hand, I got to, you know, Mm -hmm. rub their hand, you know, talk to them (laughs) and talk to them and do this. And then finally, after six months, they might try something. And it's really funny. It's all over the place. You know, you'd think it would be this way for this type of person, that type of person. It's all over the place. That's okay. And a lot of that has been because they hadn't actually ridden one or seen one or seen the reactions. They hadn't done anything. So it takes time, you know, and we see this. I mean, it's like I was saying, like when we put a shock fork on there. I mean, a unicrown fork, that was the look. And to put this thing on there that was like uh, – it looked like a Bontrager fork, but then it had these stanchions with rubber booties and all this crazy <laughs> stuff on it. It's like that looks strange. And then three, four years later, that looked normal and the other setup looked strange. Yeah. And that's just the evolution of things and how things go. you know. And it's like, man, the way bikes look today is really different. And uh, so from even like – 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's like the, the thing with carbon, you know, and, and with hydroforming of aluminum. I mean, 
15 years ago, we couldn't say, uh, sell a curved tube bike to sell our, you know, save our soul. And now it's like they all have curves and shapes and they're beautiful, you know, and they're well worked out because you work it all out on it on, um, on the, the computer, you know, and you really can see what's happening. You know, it's like we used to have to build things and then destructively test it or, or you know, ride it and all this stuff. And uh, it would take so long. And there was so little. Everything was so conservative, you know, and it's really opened up. I love it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, clearly you're someone who's willing to embrace change and to try new things, and and you've had a lot of success because of it. So hopefully that'll be a model for others to sort of follow in the years to come. Well, we, we embrace change, but we try to do it responsibly. You know, it was like uh, way, way back in the day, 1980, uh, we had an opportunity to use seven. 100C or 650B tires. Uh, we had some from Finland. We had a supply we could get our hands on. They were like 44 millimeter. And really, if we had really worked on it hard, we could have gotten some custom tires made. But man, every bike shop in the United States had a 26 by 2125 tire in it, mm-hmm. a Uniroyal Nobby for $11.95. <laughs> and this tire, we would have had to, had to uh, have sold for $130 each. And nobody was selling tires for that expensive. It was like, you make decisions based on practicality sometimes. You have to have tires available. I mean, God, you're going to make a tire, a bike that like, the tires are like really expensive, only I supply them, and uh, you can't get them anywhere else. That sounds not good, you know? And you take what happened when the 650B, you know, hit a 27 and a half, man, it's like, Everybody stood up and said, okay, we're going to do be silly like we were with the 29er and we're going to supply these things. And it's like, boom, I can get these easily. This is great. And I can get a huge variety of these things. I love it. You know, so I like that we've got more variety and everything. I like the, you know, the 27 plus size a lot. You know, I mean, it's a 29er almost on the outside. It's pretty, but man, that thing's got, it's got plushness and everything. Then it's like, you know, our, our, um, or 29 plus, that's almost 31 inches. And it's like 100 years ago, the two most popular sizes in bikes and everything was off-road was 28 and 32 inches. Huh. Of course, they're sort of narrow and everything, but what do they know about that? I mean, the the di- outside diameter and everything, it has a lot to do with sort of the speed that a bike handles at. You know, the gyroscopic is, is a combination of both the gyroscopic the stability thing going on and then um, just how long the wheelbase gets stretched out to and everything, especially the rear ends and everything. So it's funny. I mean, diameter is one thing and then um, the whole thing with width and plushness, oh, man, that's a whole new place that we've been able to take it. You know, it's like you used to be able to do that, but it was all the high-quality stuff was in uh, road and cyclocross bikes and all that way back in the day. And then finally, you know, we're getting better and better tires and like 26 and all that. And now it's like, wow, you got all these different crazy sizes that you can play around with. Yeah. So as a designer, you know, it's a, it's really great to be able to have the, the resource, you know, to play around with it. I'm glad people aren't afraid to play with stuff now. That's like what I'm proudest of is like I sort of broke down some doors and let people like run inside. And now they're trying things even I couldn't have imagined. I love that. Yeah. 
That's really cool. Well, you've been such a huge influence on the industry and the culture. Thank you for sharing this story with us and, and for letting us know what's going on with mountain biking today. Uh, thanks to everybody that dedicates themselves, their bodies, their hearts, their souls into this beautiful sport. And uh, let's go out and make the sport better. And let's go out and teach our kids about it. And let's go out and knock down the institutions that say no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can keep up with the latest news from Gary Fisher and the Trek brand at trekbikes.com. And you can follow Gary on Twitter at Gary underscore Fisher. And be sure to subscribe to the Single Tracks podcast so you don't miss more interviews like this one. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. <laughs>